Conversations with Leaders is a podcast focused on the intersection of business and technology. Today, we're focusing on security as a critical component of digital transformation. Join Clark Rogers, Director of AWS Enterprise Strategy, as he interviews Amazon's Chief Security Officer, Steve Schmidt, about what it takes to establish a security culture, scale securely, and continuously adapt to changing circumstances. As you can imagine, a critical component of business innovation and transformation is security. And I'm excited to be joined by Steve Schmidt on this topic today. Hey Clark, super happy to be here today. When you were at the FBI, how did you first come to AWS as a customer? What was the business problem you were trying to solve? So in, uh, in 2007-ish, my team and I at the FBI owned a, a set of intelligence processing systems. And due to the volume of stuff that we got and the velocity with which some of those intelligence operations proceeded, we were huge consumers of, of very large compute systems, uh, lots and lots of disk arrays. And the problem was it was nearly impossible to manage the volume of data that we had uh, just in simply storing it. And we saw this thing called Amazon S3 and said, an object store, awesome, that's what we need to help unload this, this undifferentiated heavy lifting we've had to do with file systems and block management and everything else. And so we approached Amazon and said, hey, would you be interested in building one of these for the US government because we need it? And they said, well, you guys seem to understand this distributed systems thing, and you've got a pretty good idea on how to put these building blocks together. Rather than being a customer, would you like to come build them? So we moved over, a bunch of us from the same team came over at the same time, and here we are in AWS. And interestingly, my first job in AWS was not in security. Um, I owned the team that built virtual private cloud. So the networking infrastructure that, that all of our customers use today that underpins the entire cloud was something that our team was responsible for the design and implementation of, um, the original versions of it. And that's something we're super proud of. Um, and I really learned an incredible amount about how to build at high velocity because of that, which has served me really well, because part of what my job is now is ensuring that we maintain that velocity of innovation over time. And that takes some very distinct intentional movements to find ways to protect the business appropriately while fostering innovation and fostering that incredible velocity that allows us to delight customers. So as a leader, what does, what does innovation mean to you and how, how have you come to define it? So innovation for me is, is something that is the fuel of our business. It is the way we think that differentiates us from a lot of other organizations. And the process of innovation is something that's very intentional. It's not something that sort of happens uh, by mistake. And it starts off with something that is, is pretty basic, but a lot of people don't think about directly, and they should. And it's inclusiveness. And inclusiveness, both in the sense of, of racial equality and gender equality, but it's also inclusiveness in terms of seniority with the organization. And I'll give you an example there. Um, my organization, like every other organization in Amazon, does something called OP1 every year, which is our operational planning cycle. It's where we propose what projects, major initiatives, et cetera, we're gonna do for the following year. And to start that thinking process, my team starts off with offering an opportunity to every single member of our organization, no matter what their level is, to propose what we consider to be a big idea. And the result of that is a really cool set of, of diverse thought processes that would never have occurred to us if we tried to do this from a, a top-down perspective. 
when you're talking to the to the business leaders, what what does security mean to the business and perhaps the board? And and how do you think this interlocks with innovation? Security means different things to different people, as you as you point out there. Um, to the board of directors, as an example, it's something that the board has to focus on to ensure the safety of the organization and the safety of our customers. So they need to be able to measure how effectively we're doing as a security organization. Um, to do that, we present to the board on a regular basis. And the way we present is both in a narrative form, but right. also in dashboard form, where we talk about how we are doing against well-defined common standards. So we've built into the structure of the company a focus on security. For example, when I talk to my peers and a lot of, of our customers out there, um, we'll have a conversation about where do you report in the organization and how does that influence the way the business thinks about security? From the beginning, the CISO at AWS has reported to the CEO of the company. And that was a very intentional design choice that was made because it emphasizes to everybody else in the organization that security really is a top-level function that we have to do right every single day. And it is much the, the sort of the tactical work of understanding what's going on in security as it is the teaching of the priority of security by the CEO of the company to the people who operate the company. And as a result, we end up with people with the right prioritization, and they think carefully, correctly, and constantly about security in our organization. When I speak to customer CISOs and CIOs and CTOs, uh, they're often, you know, they're challenged on how to bring security to the forefront as a uh, business strategic advantage. Does the board want to hear about things like uh, how many viruses we stopped or how many systems have we patched or, or how, how do I, as a customer CISO, how do I frame my security metrics to something that the board's going to care about? Let's start off with the, the answer to the board question there. Um, you're, you're correct that a lot of people focus on the wrong things when they're talking to board or boards of directors. They'll focus on the minutia of things like the patching of systems. And don't get me wrong, the patching of systems is absolutely fundamental to the operation of the business. But what the board is looking for is an overview of sufficiency of security operations. Now, no two companies are alike, no two boards are alike, but I'll talk about the way we view that. So when we do this kind of examination of how we are doing and go to our board of directors, we use common frameworks for scorecards, things like NIST 800-171, as an example, which has a set of controls and we grade ourselves, both using our own staff and using third parties, against those controls. Now, as I'm sure you experienced, the, the NIST control sets a great starting point, but it is not accurate or appropriate for every business or every component of a business. We've had to tune the, the controls that are in there to be right for each portion of a business. But as part of that, we've established that we do security very, very well in many areas. And because of that, it allows the board to focus in on just those few areas where we are constantly improving. Um, and as part of our reporting to the board, what we do is we f take those areas where we are improving and we list out who's doing what by when for each of those areas so that the board can see that there is progress they can measure whether that progress is appropriate. Is it going fast enough? Do we have the right resourcing in place to manage it? Anybody who runs a business who says we do everything with security perfectly is probably not looking hard enough. Uh, so there are always opportunities for improvement in any business, especially one where you acquire a lot of companies. And that tends to be where we have the most improvement work to do. 
because we're lucky. We are an incredibly well-resourced security organization. As we sort of switch topics a little bit, um, as you know, digital innovation, or some people call it digital transformation, is you know the hot topic these days at organizations. Many companies are transforming themselves from traditional customer interaction models to being on a path to engaging with their customers almost 100% digitally. Where do you see customer security organizations fitting into this new paradigm? How can they help their companies push to being truly digital? So my experience with customer security organizations is they fit into one of two major buckets. The first bucket is what I would term to be a traditional security organization. They view themselves as gatekeepers, as people whose job it is to stop things from happening. And I understand how they got there. Um, it is one of those circumstances where they were told, don't let this happen, don't let that happen. And so they build their mental model, their organizational structure, their processes and procedures, even their policies as a way to do that. And it may be right for some businesses which are not high velocity change organizations. Um, they have maybe some specific regulatory problem they have to deal with or something like that. But for those businesses who want to change, who want to evolve because the world around them is evolving rapidly, and who want to be competitive with their peers in industry, they need to flip that on its head and think about how their security organization is an enabler for the business rather than a gatekeeper. So one of the, the things that's kind of interesting about that is how I ended up in this job that I'm in right now. Um, as, as we said at the beginning of this discussion, I was running a service team that was building software and networking and infrastructure for the company. And Andy asked me to help uh, find somebody to be the head of security for the organization. And after a, a bit of um, going through that process and we hadn't run into anybody that, that really fit the bill, uh, Andy asked me to be the head of security for the company. Um, and my initial response to him was, no, thank you. Uh, I really wasn't interested. And um, he said, why? And I said, well, because security shops tend to be the house of no. Uh, it's the, you know, how to prevent things from occurring. Because that had been my experience in the federal government with security. Is security was always the people who told you what you can't do. And Andy said, okay, yeah, I understand that. Congratulations, go figure it out. Um, and the net result was a job that I love. I really, really enjoy because I get to be a builder here instead of somebody who's enforcing things. And a builder both in the sense of building tools because let's face it, the size of the infrastructure that we operate, you can't buy off the shelf software that works. Um, the other piece of that is I get to build an organization and think very carefully about how we build an organization who is focused on maintaining or increasing velocity safely. So when a service team comes to our application security team and says, we wanna do this kind of thing to implement our service, and the first reaction in the head of the engineer on my team hearing that is, oh, that's a terrible idea. The, the sort of the old school response is, no, you can't do that. Does that help the service team do the right thing? No, it doesn't. It may stop that particular tactical problem from occurring, but it doesn't solve the problem. So the way I expect my team members to, be, to behave is to say, okay, hmm, that's interesting. What are you trying to achieve? What is your ultimate goal out the end of this? And then to dissect that problem and come up with a safe, reasonable, responsible way to implement what they want to do. And then go back to the service team and say, okay, so if you assemble these components this way, you get to the end that you want, and we do it in a way that's better for our customers, that's safer. 
And I think that's one of the reasons that we've been able to maintain velocity across the company is that we have a very different way of thinking about security than a more traditional security team. Oftentimes in my conversations with uh, customer CISOs and other executives, uh, security is seen as a blocker to business innovation. Uh, I know this is a, a myth and an assumption that's out there. How can companies overcome this assumption and convince their business that uh, security, in fact, is that enabler? So one of the things that my team does, for example, is we measure influenced revenue. So the same way that um, a salesperson thinks about revenue or a service team thinks about revenue, my team thinks about revenue. So we understand when customers adopt our services because of security features or capabilities that we've added into them. And we score those as wins because it's something that we've encouraged, that we've helped build, and that we make sure our customers can take advantage of. Similarly, internally, we make sure that we help the business understand when we've succeeded in securing something appropriately so that there aren't problems down the road. And I'll give you an example of, of a, a metric that we look at there is if we have a service that is deployed and we find a security problem in the service after deployment, we consider that a failure because we didn't catch it before that service went into deployment. Similarly, we count how many potential problems we averted pre-launch and score those as wins. And those are metrics that we follow with great regularity. And in fact, they're presented in our OP1 document every year. So for example, if we build a new code scanning tool that is 10% more accurate or has 5% fewer false positives than the tool we were using before, that's something we're super proud of because it means a velocity change across the entire company. And that is something that we talk about very publicly up through our CEO so that Andy and Adam in the, in the following case understand what value they're getting for the investment in the money that they put into the security organization. We hope you're enjoying this discussion to join the conversation and engage with other business leaders on these topics, follow us on LinkedIn at AWS Executive Connection. So do businesses of different sizes, as far as small, medium businesses, startups, uh, do they need to think about security posture differently in order to drive innovation? Or do these rules apply to companies of all sizes? I think the, the rules about security apply to companies of all sizes, whether those companies realize it or not. Uh, if they're to be successful long-term, they're going to have to be able to secure their customers' data in the way the customers expect. I mean, that's just sort of the cost of doing business. Now, the fun thing about my position here is that I believe we get to democratize security significantly. So, for example, um, for a long time, you had to be a big company to be able to afford a security team who had the skills to run a large intrusion detection shop, for example, and to keep current with things like threat intelligence feeds. And heck, even those threat intelligence feeds themselves cost a lot of money. With services like guard duty that my team operates, every single customer can take advantage of that for a relatively low cost. And that's really empowering for small and medium-sized businesses is they can get leverage with the kind of security that they need without having to have the monster security team to do the work. So they, they can effectively take, take advantage of all the same scale 
uh, that a large bank would, even if they're just doing a small project in their garage or starting that next next great business. Yeah, that's that's very true. So if you, if you look at sort of the feedback loop that we use from customers, every feature request, every additional kind of capability that our largest customers drive us to include in everything from guard duty to S3 can be taken advantage of by any customer. The customers who are on the free tier, for example, get exactly the same services that those who are our biggest customers have. So for the the business executives who are trying to find that right balance between ambitious business growth and prioritizing security posture, what guidance would you give? The way that I've found most customers succeed is by setting up good guardrails to begin with. So the customers who are most successful in a development environment give their developers a safe place to operate from the beginning. So when I've, I work with customers, especially those who are, are really sort of dipping their toe for the first time, they've never operated in the cloud before, often I'll say, you know what you should do? You should take a specific workload from your security shop mm. and operate that in the cloud. So a classic example there is log management. Why? Because log management is a royal pain in the neck on premises because it's very expensive to store all the logs that you need and the analysis of them is costly as well. Whereas it's very cheap to store those logs in AWS. You know, if you're using Glacier, it costs almost nothing to keep those logs for whatever retention period you need uh, in order to be effective. But the mere act of the security team moving a workload into the cloud means the security team learns how to use the cloud effectively. And they can then start building the guardrails, the landing zones, et cetera, that help the other people in that organization operate effectively and with the right visibility for the security team. I love that uh, the concept around putting a critical security role in the cloud first that helps the security teams build that confidence so then they can go back to uh, the rest of the business and say, not only did it work for us, we're comfortable with it, the cloud is open for business. Customers are also often curious about how AWS does security at scale. Since you're intimately familiar with internal AWS security operations, as well as customer-facing security, could you share a little about how you go about protecting a multi-billion dollar run rate company and its customers? The number one thing that we focus on is automation. And that's something that a lot of people say, yeah, automation, automation, automation. But it actually starts in the way that we design the way we operate. So. A lot of security shops, one of the items on a tour that people go through is the security operations center where all these screens on the walls and people sitting there looking at things and that kind of stuff. So I'll get asked for, hey, can I tour your security operations center? And my answer to them is, I'm sorry, we don't, we don't have one. And I get this very confused look. People are like, what do you mean? How do you keep track of all of that? And I said, well, it's, it's automation because if you require a human to notice something occurring on a screen and then take an action, I guarantee you the bad thing that you're worried about is gonna happen when that person's having lunch or when they're having a bad day and they don't feel well and they're not looking at the screen at the right time or something else like that. Um, so we have a single one on-call security engineer whose job it is is to babysit the automation. Now there's a whole raft of security staff behind them if something happens who can jump in and, and help address the problem. But when you build that automation, it does two things. One is automation rarely makes mistakes. So it does what you tell it to every single time repeatedly, which is different than humans. You know, the, the person who's been there for 15 years may be excellent at doing the task that you've given them, but the new person may not quite know yet. 
And so by building an automation, we ensure repeatability. We ensure that the task is done the same way each time with the same precision. And it's better to meet SLAs because the tooling fires and keeps track of metrics about what we're doing when. Furthermore, it means reduced access by our humans to our systems. And that's something I believe really, really strongly in, that human beings and systems that contain customer data do not mix. And so by having the right automation in place, it means that we don't have humans with privileged access to systems to do things. Um, the net result is a, a pretty smoothly operating security shop, but interestingly, and this is one of the things we didn't foresee when we started this journey, it results in happier engineers. Because, I mean, it's, it's measurably happier engineers. Our engineers were hired primarily because they're smart and they've got great judgment about things. And I want them focusing that judgment on those incredible gray areas of, you know, is this a problem or is that a problem? Or is this particular thing not an issue in this context versus that? What I don't want them doing is click, 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 you know, the same old operation over time. And guess what? They don't want to do that either. So our hiring and retention is better with an investment in operation. So with, with the focus on automation, I, I can hear the customer questions now. Uh, at what point do I automate a security process? Is it every process you must automate from day one? Are there certain ones that you want to focus on to automate first over others? Uh, what, what kind of advice would you give there? It's a question set that we get from our own employees all the time. They say, you know, when, when do I make that investment decision on, on do I automate something or not? Because it's and not And what cheap. I tell them is there is no perfect answer. It is something that you have to make a judgment on at any point in time. So if it's something that you're doing regularly and repeatedly, I would say that's probably a candidate for automation. If it's an area where it's fraught with error, where a human being can make a mistake very easily, that's ripe for automation. And those are the, the two ends of the spectrum. One is boring. The other is, uh is it going to go wrong? And so that's when we focus on, on automation the most. Um, the thing that you do occasionally and doesn't have a large blast radius and there's a good recovery process if you do it incorrectly that sits in the middle of that perhaps should wait till later until you have more resources and more time. When have we ever had more resources or more time? You know, it's, exactly. I don't have a problem with getting budget to hire humans. I have a problem finding the human beings to hire. Uh, that is the single biggest problem we've got as an industry right now is there is an insufficient supply of adequately trained, knowledgeable security staff across the industry. Absolutely. So, so let's, let's pivot to that. Um, for an organization that, you know, they, they know they want security engineers and they need advanced security expertise, they can't just pick up the phone and just find these people uh, uh, or, or find them uh, on the street. What, what kind of um, career progression that can we offer other engineers within the company, get them interested in security, or maybe even explore uh, other roles within the company that weren't traditionally security roles, like maybe somebody from HR or finance, uh, how can we bring some of those talents in and help grow the security team that way? It's interesting you bring up the sort of the HR or finance question, because what we found is, is we've built a couple processes to take people from different job categories, different job sets within the company and move them into security. And the, the talent that we seek the most in those people is curiosity. It's wanting to know what's under the rock that's under the rock and to keep digging deeply until they have a very specific answer for a problem. And finding that talent, that skill, 
we can then start teaching them the mechanics of security, the how do you do this, the tools, the procedures, etc. Now we bias very heavily towards builders on our team. And we actually include components of the software development engineer interview process in our security engineering interview process because it focuses on how well that individual is focused on building something. We look intentionally to very diverse populations, diverse in all of the different categories of diverse, because people think about problems differently. Our adversaries are diverse. They think about problems from all kinds of different spectra and different ways of thinking about things. So I want my security team to reflect that diversity as well. And the net result, I think, is a stronger output, a stronger set of defenses, because we have coverage for the problems that occur to people from all over that spectrum of the world. Yeah, I've, I've talked with a couple customers that have been able to leverage uh, people from their HR teams into security for like running the security awareness program because they really understand how people think. And people from finance, maybe an accountant has that eye for irregularities that you want on your threat detection team. So I, I think it's fantastic sort of uh, broaden the field of, of where you're actually recruiting from. Yeah, um, it's interesting. And the other piece about that is people often approach security from the, the concept that it is a technical problem. And to your point earlier about HR team members who think about people, security is not a technical problem. It is a person, a people problem. And so having HR team members who can think about how does this person think, how does that person approach a particular activity are super important to our ability to understand our adversaries and to get ahead of them. Steve, as you know, uh, there's a lot of marketing that's going out about zero trust and uh, zero trust seems to be one of those things that everyone has a different answer depending on uh, either what industry they're in or if they work for a security vendor or not. Uh, what's your take on zero trust and, and what is AWS doing about it? The concept of zero trust is something that, you, as you point out, that, that means different things to different people. And I'll tell you what it means to us. It means pushing authorization and authentication down to the smallest element of data possible. And that's important for two points. One is because it gives us the right level of control over that data. But it also means that we can build systems that are accessible from anywhere on the planet, as opposed to having to have people within VPNs. So one of the things that worked really well for us out of the, the pandemic work at home environment was the fact that we've been focusing on zero trust for many years. As a result, about 80% of our workforce could do their job without having to be on the corporate VPN. Tremendous benefit when everybody all of a sudden has to scale up VPN systems. Now, we're doubly lucky there uh, that we started off with a VPN infrastructure that was running largely on Amazon EC2. So when we needed to scale up that infrastructure, it took us about 48 hours to add, and I'm not, not being silly here, 10 times the capacity for the VPN infrastructure. And that allows us to serve a company that's one and a half million now um, employees very effectively. The other part of zero trust that makes big differences is when you put the right zero trust in um, authentication, authorization, and proxy services in place, it defends against certain kinds of activities that may otherwise affect you. So people often ask us, were you affected by the exchange vulnerabilities? And we run one of the largest exchange infrastructures in the world. And the answer was no, we weren't. And it was because we had a zero trust gateway that we built 
in front of that exchange infrastructure. So the attacker's method of operation did not work in that circumstance because of that wedge that was put between exchange and the outside world. Um, did we anticipate that particular attack methodology? No, we didn't. But what we did anticipate was a need for our customers to be able to tell us that their data shouldn't be available in certain parts of the world or should only be available to certain sets of employees at certain times of day, days of week, and that sort of thing. And by building the right levels of control on your systems, on your applications, and on the data itself, it gives you the ability to adjust those knobs as the threat world changes around us. Now, it doesn't mean automatically then that all of the data behind it has the level of granularity of control that we want. We still have to fix those legacy applications just like everybody else does. There's no magic bullet. Um, but it gives us that first point of enforcement and control that we can then retrofit the applications at the right speed behind it. You've spoken at length at many reInvent and reInforce conferences, among others, about the importance of building or strengthening a culture of security within AWS and what works for us. What guidance do you give customer CISOs on this topic? So customer CISOs need to think about this as an opportunity to succeed rather than a problem. And I think the way to, to use that as an example um, is perhaps starting off with the, how do I approach all of these issues that I've got. You know, I've got the entire world who's coming against me. If you try and solve all the problems in the short term, as you well know, you'll solve none of them. So finding out what are the most important things for you to tackle and then figuring out what is an 80% solution to those problems in the short term is a great way to get going and to make the first several steps. And that is, that is sort of one of the fundamental problems that a lot of engineering teams, whether it's in security or anything else, have to deal with is engineers by nature love perfection. They want something out the other end that is, is absolutely perfect. And getting them to realize that an 80% solution that's delivered today is so much better for a business than a perfect solution that's delivered never or delivered five years from now. So Steve, how do you maintain your sanity and some semblance of a work-life balance? So the, the way that I think about this is I define a checkout period for myself every single week. So I am going to check out from work for a period of 12 hours. And that is a hard checkout, meaning everybody knows that I'm not gonna be available for work stuff. Now I have an awesome deputy who can take over for me without any problems. Um, and what I do then is I give myself a task or a set of things to do that is very, very different from what I do in my day job. I don't check my work email. I don't do anything associated with, with what I do during my day job. Um, and interestingly, what I do during that time frame is sort of the polar opposite of what I do during the day. I'm a volunteer firefighter and paramedic. And so what I do is I switch from dealing with computer systems that I can't see or touch in a business that's global to dealing with human beings one-on-one -on -one in person. And it allows me to reset my mind and to focus on, on immediate feedback. I know in that position, if I do my job right as a medic, I'm gonna improve that person's life materially in the really short term. And that allows me to sort of say, awesome, I feel good about myself, I'm relaxed, and it's, it's ironic that people say, what, what do you mean relaxed? And it's like, no, actually there's been a number of studies to say this, that people in that business who've been there for a long time, and I've been doing that for 34 years, um, their heart rate actually decreases 
when the siren turns on and they're going on a call. Um, because for them, it's a sweet spot. It's a happy place. And for me, that's what I love, is, is that ability to go from doing something that's incredibly global and intangible to something that's incredibly local, one-on-one, -on -one, and immediately beneficial to a particular person. So uh, advice to your fellow CISOs, to find something that's, that's different from their day job and then just invest yourself in it? Find something that's the opposite of your business and get an agreement with your boss that you can check out for a period of time. And the hardest part, make yourself do it. Because we don't get to our jobs by being somebody who's passive. You get to our jobs by being aggressive about finding ways to improve things in organizations. And your natural tendency there is, is to do the, gotta check, gotta check, gotta check, to see what's going on. Break the habit. I, I know exactly what you mean. When, when I'm done with work, I make sure I immerse myself either, either swimming or jujitsu or something that's completely different that just takes my mind off of things. And when you're really focused on something else, uh, the work sort of fades away. And then when you return to work, uh, you're ready to engage again. So I think that's great advice. So Steve, you meet with a lot of customer CISOs and you probably have more meetings with CISOs than I do. Uh, what's, what's the one message or one thing that you'd like to get out to the audience today that really sort of scales those conversations that you have with CISOs on a regular basis? I'd say that the, the most important things, and there are two, um, bucket into the way the organization operates and what the organization does on behalf of your internal builders. So on the way your organization operates, it's find a way to be a positive influence in your company's uh, way of doing things. How do you become an enabler is critically important to our ability to succeed as security leaders. On the other side, building a safe place for your developers to start using the cloud is the single best thing you can do. Steve, thank you for joining us today and for your insight. Clark, thanks very much for having me. It's been awesome. Thanks for listening to this episode of Conversations with Leaders, brought to you by AWS Executive Insights. If you enjoyed this episode, please help us spread the word and subscribe, share, rate, and review. Visit aws.amazon.com slash executive insights for more on these topics.